so I guess my first question for you is how are you how are you feeling and what are you thinking about um, the way this pandemic is ravaging through our minds and our bodies and our sort of systems of society like what's coming up for you over the past couple of days so thank you for that question uh, and it's a, a beautiful question for all of us to ask ourselves uh, and I, I'll give just a little bit of, of um, backstory so that people understand the context of my answer sure. uh, and uh, so I am 69 years of age now and when I was 23 I was in a motor vehicle accident that changed my life and um, in, in the years that have followed which have been about 46 years um, I have had to learn how to walk several times in my lifetime I live with constant pain and um, it's chronic pain with acute episodes and I often um, have neuro pruning that leads to sort of a neurodiversity so sometimes lose my speech and walking and that kind of thing, but um, I'm a professor at University of Toronto, uh, and um, and, I, and I teach all the time. So my life work coming out of this experience has been attending to suffering, uh, and I did that first in terms of end-of-life care and cancer care and uh, AIDS care, and then I went on to um, do work after I left palliative care in 2005 to to develop the mindfulness meditation program at U of T. So my response to your question, and it's a beautiful question, is that I'm doing wonderfully well, uh, sitting in what is a huge transformation uh, globally. Uh, my heart goes out to all of the people that are suffering, uh, and I try as whenever I can to be able to hold that suffering and in my mind and in my practice to transform it. So what that means is that, um, based on the way that I've tra I trained, is that if we all just do a pylon around the suffering and how terrible life is uh, going to become, how catastrophic it is, um, then there will be no opportunity for us to transform things. We'll just be a pile of suffering uh, and it'll be high and deep and I believe that uh, human agency is such that we can choose to step into that pile hold that pile of suffering uh, and start to seek the light and um, I know that Leonard Cohen talks about this in his poetry uh, about allowing the light to shine through I believe that we don't have it externalized although it is externalized but I believe we have an opportunity within ourselves to cultivate that. And so I would say that we have the choice either to just see all that's wrong in the world or a choice to see it as it is and then say, I'm going to take this into myself and do just one thing that I can do that might make this situation just a little bit better. And that has been my practice with my own suffering my suffering of my patients and families, suffering of the teams that I've worked with, is that there is always something that can be done to make the situation just a little bit better. And so every hour, maybe every minute, I ask the question in this moment in time, what one thing could I do that could bring change to this situation? 
And so in the situation that we find ourselves in, the one thing might be to phone a friend, to write an email, to pay attention to who arises in my consciousness that I need to reach out to. It might be that I pay attention to my own suffering and go and have a sit down and do a meditation. It might um, be that I take my dog for a walk. I live in two places, both in the city and the forest. And so uh, in the forest, there are chipmunks and squirrels and uh, birds and my dog and I, and we'll go for a walk. Uh, and if I see somebody off in the distance, I will make sure that I um, am staying six feet away from them and it's easy to do in the valley where I live but I'll also make sure that I wave to them so that they know that there's a dose of social connectivity coming their way. So um, I, I see this not as positive thinking, but as uh, an awareness practice. I see it as being attentive, intentional, with attitudes of something. Uh, and it's usually loving kindness or gratitude or healing or peace. So that would be my answer to your question. Beautiful. Thank you. I'm curious as to, you know, you mentioned you have a place in the city and a place in the forest. Um, you know, we're all facing this situation of quarantine. Did you have to make a choice about where to quarantine? Are you, are you moving back and forth between those places? You know, what, what strikes you as the, as the right place to be in a moment like this? So I mostly live in rural Canada, um, but I go to the city to teach. And, um, excuse me, my throat. And in the city is the University uh, of Toronto, where I teach. And the University of Toronto has uh, closed down its in-class classes. And meditation is an in-class class. Uh, and so, in many ways, the decision was made uh, for me that I didn't have to be in the city. Uh, and I can stay in touch with my family through technology. But it was a very difficult decision because um, I, th I probably feel safer in the city given my own health issues um, because I'm, I'm quicker access by minutes to, to hospitals. Um, but I chose to step towards what I thought would be greater health for myself and my husband uh, and that was to get up north where there are beautiful vistas uh, and the air is fresh um, and um, that I could, I could be up here and, and, and have more, I guess, of myself to be able to offer to others. And so even though I'm up north, I'm spending a huge amount of time on technology, which is not my, my uh, forte, as you know. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's on phone and on email and on uh, all the platforms that we're doing um, conversations like this. Uh, and so I have, I have the best of circumstances. I consider myself very lucky, um, but uh, I am relating and, and connecting to communities both in the city and up north in whatever way that I can. Yeah, I think, you know, you spoke a little bit about, you know, allowing the light in, uh, that quote from Leonard Cohen. And there's obviously, um, you know, there's a subtext there, which is that in the darkness, we allow the light in. And that's something that's very real for me. 
Um, and I think a lot of the people that I've spoken to that have some sort of spiritual feeling around this to see the suffering and embrace the darkness, but also not lose sight of the light in this moment. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is, is you and I have connected before on the, on the topic of death. Um, and, you know, you described yourself uh, on the a Mindful Society um, global community meetup as an Olympian of foolishness around suffering, um, which I think kind of relates to what you said about your own personal story, both in terms of the accident, but also I'm kind of pointing more towards the decades of experience you have working with those who are facing death. And this is a really interesting area. In my own practice, um, death seems to be the access point to any kind of compassion and loving kindness so that I can meditate on my own death or the death of those that I care about. And it can unlock a sort of love and, and compassion and care in me. And it's not lost on me that the situation that we're facing is one that's about mortality, right? There's a small percentage and, you know, my heart goes out to those people who are directly facing the COVID-19 virus um, or the, those that they care about are directly facing it. But then you see widespread effects in terms of our social reality and our systemic reality in terms of social distancing. And underlying a lot of it is this mortality piece is that what's at risk here is our health. Um, and there's kind of like a fear of death somewhere beneath the general panic, the quick reactions like the panic buying um, and that sort of thing. And I'm curious, as someone who's worked so closely with the dying for decades, what's your perception of the react versus respond in a situation like this um, where there are definitely people who are directly facing the problem there's a larger scope of people who need to take compassionate action, such as social distancing, and yet there seems to be a, a healthy dose of panic um, that's spreading. How do, you, how do you sort this out from your experience um, with those who face death directly uh, for so many years? So it's a beautiful question and a deep question, Jay. Um, so for your audience, what I, I let them know is that my PhD and um, my master's degree and even my undergraduate degree was um, in the study of dying and death and um, how um, mortality informs our life, whether it's to inform how we live or inform concepts of immortality. Uh, and so I would say as a person, um, having done the academic studies, having uh, worked with my own suffering for so many years, uh, having had the very deep privilege of sitting with thousands of families, so thousands of, of um, thousands and thousands of people, um, because families include more than one other person, um, that, and they were my greatest teachers about what this experience was about, is that um, from the moment that we're conceived, we um, have inherited the ability to die. And people find that a very bleak concept, but I don't find it bleak. I find it relational. And, and so uh, when I think of your child, I think of that this was a very brave act for you and your wife to conceive a child. And you focus on the beautiness of uh, the beautifulness of that child being born, 
but does your attention allow you to go to the possibility that you are creating a child that will um, likely see you to your grave or that you might be able to see them um, before their time to their grave? This is the essence of the um, twinning or pairing of any life, that its um, purpose is to come to a closure around its death. And if we don't um, see that relationship, and we, we don't see that relationship, we're often uh, taught to avoid seeing that connection, that what ends up happening is that we spend our life gathering more life. And if you ask somebody, why are you gathering so much life? And why are you building walls around yourself? And why is it that you are getting a bigger house and um, you know stronger armor? Most people say, well, it's, it's to protect myself. And I say, protect yourself from what? Uh, and they say to protect myself from death. Uh, and so, or my demise. And so, as an early uh, theologian and thanatologist, I had to ask the question about, well, doesn't anybody ever stop to think that, that to create means that we are putting ourselves on the superhighway towards uh, dying and death. And I found that for the most part, the world is not literate around our own mortality. Uh, and so then I set out uh, again as a thanatologist, well, how do you make people literate around dying and death? And I went through world literatures to look at what authors would look at. I went through world belief systems uh, to be able to look at different concepts of what um, dying and death are all about and life after death. I studied near-death and out-of-body experiences so that I could see what the literature on that um, told me about what people think um, being in one's body and outside of one's body might be. I explored ideas around consciousness and can consciousness exist outside of our physicality. And so it's a huge body of literature and a huge area of study. Um, and I managed to get a job um, based on all those studies uh, as a social worker and a psychotherapist to work with people. And so I just sat and I had uh, fireside chats the way you're having a fireside chat with me right now about what their concept of dying and death was. And it created a form of existential counseling um, that is just really a reflective practice on what do you think life is purposes and is it for us just to acquire wealth or is it for us to develop a sense of uh, soulfulness or spirituality is it to produce more children are we to just produce children that aren't um, created into optimal human beings uh, is it to overpopulate the earth like what what is the purpose of life uh, and over the course of time, my journey as a Judeo-Christian theologian led me to um, Buddhism, and I'm not Buddhist, but led me to Buddhism and led me to mindfulness meditation as a non-sectarian practice, but deeply informed by my Buddhist mentors and also by my Christian mentors, um, my J Jewish mentors. Uh, and what I found is in the core and the center of most belief systems uh, is an understanding about what life is, but not necessarily fully um, 
a dialogue about what death is. There's a belief system about death, but not necessarily, um, and there's even practices about death, but do we as individuals have a relationship with one of the most um, significant things that will happen to us? And um, Senator Carstairs um, was working on a palliative care project with us around 2001, 2005, and she got up and she said, um, what percentage of the population in this room do you think will die? And so you could see all the statisticians going for, well, what, what percentage? And, and then suddenly everybody realized it's 100% of us, and we all started laughing. And so in a population where 100% of us will need this knowledge, where is it and how do we access it? Well, we access it through families and we access it through the mentorship of people that are our elders. And I think our elders have been very busy teaching us how to survive, but have not taught us about thriving and have not taught us necessarily about one day your life will be your last breath. And if today was your last breath, what would you do differently? And we are facing that right now in society with the global pandemic. And, and that's the reason I consented to speak to you, because I think we are in a very unique situation. And we can um, use the situation to have these kind of dialogues. And by just showing people how easy it is to have these dialogues, then people won't be so afraid of speaking about it. So if there's someone out there um, listening to this who is wrapped up in worry, perhaps for themselves or for a loved one, um, you know, um, manifested in their daily life in terms of hyper-concern about cleanliness as we all need to share right now or, you know, obsessive behavior or ruminating negative thoughts about possibilities of death, possibilities of sickness. Um, how does this knowledge, um, this teaching help them in this moment? They are somewhere quarantined, um, perhaps quarantined in a situation that's not ideal, perhaps quarantined with, um, people they don't have a strong relationship with or even potentially abusive situations or perhaps quarantined alone because we're looking at the possibility of months here um, and really wrapped up in, you know, the facing, let me put it this way, thrown in the deep end without maybe the, t the tools about how to swim that you're talking about. What's their access point? What's the first step? Um, for them to maybe allow some of that light in, in, in your experience? A beautiful question. Again, thank you, Jay, for your insight. Um, so my first response is, a, is, um, is, is sort of a deep reflection at this moment in time. The people that I think that are most at risk are people uh, outside of Canada who don't have our extraordinary um, systems going into place. Uh, and so my heart and my mind go to them. In particular, my attention is alighting on refugee populations that are being held in refugee camps where there's no such thing 
as social isolation. And my second attention goes to people who are incarcerated in jail systems where there can be no isolation of six feet because everybody's um, cuffed and contained. Hmm. Uh, and so if anybody's listening to this, if they could just um, do a heartfelt meditation uh, of sending courage to these populations as well as anyone else that you think of that uh, is, is more at risk. And then based on what it is you said, then there are people that are so isolated uh, that they had to go into social isolation without family or friends. Uh, and this is a license um, to go mad in many ways because we are social beings. Um, but yet at the same time, we are exchanging our own well-being, or some of us are, for the sake of saving lives. And so I think that wherever you are and whatever your circumstances, there's a different perspective to be taken on all of those different ways based on who and what you are. And so um, as, as the foolish Olympian of suffering, what I, I often ask people to do, I often say to them, and if you fail at this, it's okay to fail. What have you learned? I don't ask for people to perform at high levels. I just ask people to do their very best. And so this is my answer to your question, is that um, in, in the course of everything, all of us at some time will have of the last five minutes of our life. And we try to put that off and put it at a distance or put it on the horizon. Uh, and so if you're not suffering from um, great anxiety and worry, this would be a meditation that you could um, invite in. And I say to people that my first starting point is this. Worry is a prayer for what we don't want. And worry as a concept comes from a lot of problem-based thinking which we have been taught for about 500 years as one paradigm uh, to view the world. What if we changed our prayer from worry, which is a constant state of, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, this is going to happen to me. It's also part of what happens when we get hooked into uh, media that is reporting the most catastrophic uh, situations that are going on out there. It's very hard to shift our mindset and so this is a shifting of our mindset and the first thing is to recognize that worry is arising in you ask yourself where it is arising is it arising from your gut are you having a gut reaction is it arising from your thoughts and your head are you having a rumination uh, of a, an endless series of this is the worst thing that could happen is it arising from your heart that you are, are fearful uh, and you have no place that, that feels safe? Uh, is it arising from your left baby toe? And I would think almost 100% of the population listening would say it's not in my baby toe. It's somewhere in that um, body of mind of gut reaction, heart reaction, head reaction. And, and our gut, our heart, and our head are like three brains now, we don't just have one brain. We have like three brains, and they come together. And if you just simply put your hand on your gut or your heart or your head uh, and do it sequentially, um, a little bit at a time, 
What does my gut tell me about what's going on? What does my heart tell me? What does my head tell me? And over the course of time, you're going to start to notice that they might all three agree or they might not. So your mind might say, everything's going to be okay. Your brain might say, everything's going to be okay. And your gut might say, don't be foolish. The danger is near. And we've been also taught in a worry-based society that to go for one truth. And I would encourage people to go for many truths. Listen to your body. Listen to what it's saying. Listen to what somebody that you might be in isolation with is also saying. But learn to lean into what people are stirring in you and just notice it. And don't put your foot on the accelerator and drive off a cliff around this knowing. Simply hold it, know it, breathe into it if you can, uh, and know that there's wisdom arising rather than just fear. And if we can shift our minds from worry to wisdom, if we can start to listen to our whole self rather than just the media, if we can actually ask ourselves, do I need to turn off the radio for 23 uh, hours a day so that I can pay attention to the sunlight um, coming in the window or the snowflakes falling or how my cat and my dog don't know that there's a pandemic. And so what I'd say is that in the process of this, it's actually a brain exercise that we uh, encourage people to do. Again, shifting their mindset from worry to wisdom, asking the question that one of my beloved teachers, Deke Lee Oldershaw, who's a former Buddhist nun uh, who works with uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama's foundation. She says, after you sit with yourself for a while and ask yourself what your brain brains are thinking, your brain as in your gut, your heart, your head, what do you now know? So Deke Lee would say, check in every once in a while, maybe every hour. What do you now know? And over the course of this practice of checking in, you notice that what you know doesn't stay the same. It's like a cloud. It changes constantly in relationship to the sun and the wind and the earth below. Our thoughts are constantly changing. Our reflections are constantly changing. Our emotions are constantly changing. Our body sensations are constantly changing. And in this, this is not chaos. This is a form of revelation. And we just simply have to pay attention to what is being revealed to us. And if that revelation tells us to do something hurtful and harmful to ourselves or to others, then you reach out and you get some help because that's way too much worry for you to have hold on your own. But if as you're paying attention to what comes up for you, you then maybe take to journaling or reflecting or writing a friend and asking the questions that you're asking me, Jay, how are you doing in this single moment in time? How has it changed from yesterday? How do we live in a world where every minute we're hearing how this um, virus is unfolding? Well, we just center ourselves in the suffering and we know that there's not a lot to be done except keeping ourselves and others safe. And as Mr. Trudeau would say, that's a life of service. And that we need to be able to do that 24-7. And so many of us are used to being self-serving. 
So many of us are now used to not believing what authority figures tell us what to do. So this is a tremendous and a radical act of courage to be able to isolate, to stay, to stay physically distant from people that we need to be connected to so we can have social connectivity. But it's also a call for us to be deeply courageous, deeply creative, uh, and to deeply discover ourselves, to use this opportunity to discover who you are in the face of such devastation. Thank you for that. There's a sense of the, the life and the society we've been leading, decades leading up to this moment, as being one of, um, you know, whatever we might phrase it as, but sort of one of blissful ignorance or one of indulgence, not finding the right word, but one trajectory or vector that that our society and life and our, our media has been moving on. And there's a sense that in this moment with this crisis, a lot of the bubbles around that are popping. A lot of the delusions are popping. So if we divide time, as you often do in the meditations that, that you've guided using um, T.S. Eliot's phrases, um, time past, time present, and time future, um, you know, T.S. Eliot in his Four Quartets has that this wonderful line, humankind cannot bear very much reality. Time past and time future, what might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present. But I'm curious as to your vision for time future um, in this moment. So if we look at 2020 in some respects as a kind of year zero, um, and, and providing that more people have the kind of awakening that you're describing, um, do you envision there will be a going back to normal or going to a new normal? Um, and I'm just curious what your view of time future might be um, after year zero, <laughs> if I can use that term for 2020, like what does 2021 look like? and so on, uh, in your view. Well, before I answer that, let me say to you, I've got tears in my eyes and my hands over my heart because you recognized uh, T.S. Eliot as a thread in my work. And, um, of course, that's part of the world literatures that I went in search of, of what are people's understanding of what it is to um, be alive and um, Mr. Elliot suffered a great deal uh, himself, um, but but he was one of the early thinkers that that time is not what we think it is. And um, so your question uh, about time future is very poignant, given his work, uh, and uh, that was a sneaky sacred for me to put that in the meditation, um, just to try and have people realize that they that the poetry has been there waiting for us to discover it for quite some time, um, mm. whether it be Rumi or whether it be um, Jesus's teachings or Buddha or T.S. Eliot. So the literature, the world literature, the history of literature is, is one of the places that you'll find some of the answers. 
Um, so thank you, Jay, very much for discovering that. Um, and um, so my answer uh, around time future. Um, you know, it's a deeply personal question because uh, my sense of future um, is just my sense of future. And it's not attached to a, a world belief system. Um, it is based on my life experience. And so um, one of my friends uh, or in my community, a series of friends have said, the earth has sent its children to its room. Um, and I think that that's my first answer to your question is that we are in our rooms and ruminating. And um, can we use that as an opportunity to decide what kind of change we want to see. So for some of us who have been raised in triumphant individualism and with concepts of freedom, um, where we are not attached to a world of others or that we feel that our only purpose is to survive at the expense of everyone else and that it's a competitive world and all that matters is that we are alive tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Um, that we see this uh, concept as something that we put on people and right now in, in the media, Mr. Trump and Madonna are being criticized for being a little bit self-centered. And I say to people, no, this is a much larger um, view. This is a, a culture we've created. It's a global ethos. Um, and um, it's even why I struggled doing some of these interviews so that somebody might think that I have some of the answers and I just have some of the questions. Uh, and so my, my questions that come forward is that having studied humanity and personhood and, and also the history of the world, we have a tremendous ability to adapt, adjust, survive, and continue. And even if Mother Earth got rid of all of us, I think that the dinosaurs would tell us that something will transform and will become something else. So dinosaurs became birds, I understand. And I have lots of birds outside my window. And when I see them, I think about whether they lament that they're not dinosaurs anymore or whether they're deeply grateful that they're birds. So my sense of future is that sort of continuum of the dinosaur and the birds is that what will we become? We will become something. If we become the bones of the earth and the whole world of humanity dies, our bones will be here to feed some form of generation and microderm that's out there. And so the earth recycles everything. So we will survive, but whether we survive in our present state and form or whether we are something else, I can't predict that. And um, and so when I think about at the age of 69 and with chronicity uh, as my, my signature in my life and, and it's been the foundations that have informed my life, I, I think about how it is that I want to leave the earth um, for others not about whether I'll survive, but how I want to leave the earth for others. And I think of, um, this is getting more personal, but I think of of the people that are around me, such as yourself or 
Michael Apollo or Michelle Milan or others in my um, community of, of um, Toronto's mindfulness community. You all have children. I have no children. And yet your children matter to me. And so I take on a step towards the social responsibility of saying, oh my gosh, what can I do for those children because of the world that they're going to inherit? And so I don't, I still don't panic. What I think is, well, I better go and do some meditations or talk to Jay so that there is um, some reflections on how it is we can make the world a better place for your children and your children's children. And even though I have absolutely no social obligation genetically to them, I have one morally and I have one theologically, uh, socially, um, and because people are in my life and they have children and we're a family and uh, I see myself as um, squatting in other people's families, whether they like it or not. Um, and so where will we be? I don't know, but I do know um, that there's such a thing called system causality. And system causality is what it is we're living with right now, is that um, the scientists and the politicians of the world have said, you upstream can have an effect on what happens downstream that your actions now can have a ripple effect on not only next week's number of deaths, but also the future in terms of its living. And if we've been raised in a world where we're single, solitary agents who just simply want to survive, system causality means nothing to us. And for a simple way of putting about simple uh, system causality, if you're making a beautiful tomato soup and you've got just a little bit of fresh rosemary growing in your garden and you go outside and you take a couple of sprigs of, of this fresh rosemary and bring it in and put it into your soup, your soup is changed forever. So the beauty of the tomatoes mixes with the rosemary and we suddenly have a different, a different outcome. So that's what system causality is, a pinch of this or a bit of that. And so what we're being asked to do uh, in society is isolate so that our upstream actions affect downstream outcomes. And many of us are doing that, but many of us don't have the understanding of that connective tissue of my actions upstream affecting downstream because of the way we've been taught to see ourselves as individual bundles that have no impact or are not impacted upon. So the beauty of what this is, is that it's a, a new science of connectivity. It's a, a form of quantum theory rather than scientific materialism that sees us as being isolated individual reductive units. The earth is teaching us that we belong to each other. And this virus is teaching us. So I, I don't go so far as to say bless the coronavirus for what it's teaching us because <laughs> there are real consequences and I'm not that positive about um, the, those consequences. But I can say thank you that I have the ability to respond to this crisis, that I do not react to it although I certainly say that even with all my practice, 
there is reactivity in that I worry for my family and friends. I have friends, I have family down in the States that I worry about. Um, I have brothers and sister-in-laws that are aging and vulnerable. Um, and so there's a very real um, chance that I'm going to lose people that are my peer group uh, who are even more vulnerable than I am health-wise. But when I am in that situation and I think of that, I don't hit the panic button or the accelerator and drive off the cliff like Thelma and Louise might have. I actually put the brakes on, I pause, I breathe, I think of them, I cultivate a sense of loving kindness for all that's been between us. I give great gratitude and then I might phone them and say, is there anything that I can do for you? Or I've got an army of people that are offering to do things for me, so could I ask one of them to help you if they're socially isolated? So the response that I have is that we are the architects of tomorrow. And the architectural thinking and being starts today. And the way that we respond to the coronavirus in its wholeness, and its wholeness means I have to wash my hands regularly and then I, I notice that my hands get chafed and so I have to put some cream on them. That's a whole lot of work, but I'm doing it. I'm doing it so that I can be around perhaps to um, send my emails out without sore hands and that I have to go to the grocery store and protect myself and other people so that I can keep eating. Uh, and then I have to come home and I have to maybe do some work to make sure my peeps are okay um, some strangers are okay. I have to do some meditations. But ultimately, it is, in my view, my responsibility, besides taking care of all those physical things, is that I have the greatest choice in how I want to respond to this crisis. And that choice, for me, is very, very similar to Dr. Dan Siegel's definition of mind of how we cultivate and generate energy up through our bodies, monitor and manage information and flow, and then how we put that out into the world. And that definition for me is a definition from science and philosophy about what the nature of spirit is and soul. And that is how we cultivate and generate our life force, how we monitor and manage it, as information and flow, and then how we put it out into the world. So what life force do I want to put out in the world when there's a virus? I don't want to be another virus. And if I am going to be a virus, I want to be a contagion of loving kindness and compassion rather than despair, um, deficit. Um, I don't want my attention to go to the people that don't know how to protect others. I want my attention to go to both, the ones that don't understand vulnerability and the ones that take care of the vulnerable. I'm struck by the awakening, the potential for awakening that you describe as the coronavirus being a teacher for us. Um, the lessons you describe it teaching us I'm struck by how they were always true. You know, it's, it's a sense of our shared 
humanity and interdependence and the fragility of life. Um, these are things that were always true. It's just a matter of awakening to them that, um, that I agree that coronavirus has a lot of negative implications and suffering that we have to be with and we have to send our hearts out to. But to see it in this way and to see the opportunity, um, the connection that you weave between the past and the future in the present, as I think, um, I think it's really beautiful. So I just wanted to offer my gratitude for sharing your wisdom with me and with all of us. Um, and maybe just leave a little space here if there's anything else you'd like to offer in terms of a brief practice or reflection um, or anything like that it can be as long or short as you'd like, whatever you're feeling in this moment. Uh, and then we can close from there. Okay. So thank first of all, thank you for creating the platform and the opportunity for, um, you know, um, wisdom. Uh, it is uh, something that we don't often collect. And when we do do write it or we do speak it, it often has to go through publishers who, um, you know, they, they naturally have to say wisdom isn't going to make us a lot of money. So it's so great that you created a forum for a, a cupboard uh, that we can put our wisdom in and, and draw from when we need to. So uh, much gratitude to you, Jay, and those that um, helped you do this and the technologists that developed the platforms and and your patience in, in teaching me about technology. Um, I wanted to offer a meditation, but I want to make sure that, um, that, that the people who are listening, um, this is an invitation to participate, but you must participate based on what it is arises in your body. So I want you to pay attention if it's too hard for you just to pull out of the meditation and just simply listen to me or use your um, head-based mind to to really think about what it is I'm asking uh, people to do. And so our whole conversation has been about exchanging oneself for another or for a greater good, that we stopped working as a society, we isolated ourselves, um, we moved uh, from in real time to technology and virtual communications. There has been a tsunami of people reaching out uh, to offer the best of their resources to help others. This is a tremendous exchange of self for other. We are not asking people to risk themselves, although there's great fiscal risk in, um, in, in stopping working uh, for a while. There also is great risk for our healthcare providers uh, and our first responders, uh, and so a tremendous uh, sacrifice on their part to exchange themselves for a greater good. And so this meditation is to honor that there is a practice that we all could have of exchanging self um, for other. It was the first meditation I was ever taught uh, as a Christian theologian by a Buddhist, uh, and it was certainly a very big drop-off point for me. Uh, and so this is Tong Glen, and uh, that's spelled T-O-N-G-L-E-N. Uh, it is a meditation about exchanging oneself for the suffering of the world. Uh, and so I would just say this. Bring yourself home to yourself. 
and take your most meditative stance, a stance that allows you comfort and dignity towards yourself. In other words, honoring yourself for who and what you are in this moment in time, whatever arises. Holding yourself as a precious child, the way your parent might have held you. And if your parent didn't hold you that way, then hold yourself that way because you can reparent yourself. Hold yourself as if you were the most precious thing alive. Just simply feel the breath gently coming in and out of your body. And it may be coming in through your nostrils or your mouth or your chest where your lungs are or your belly. But it is many places that your breath finds home. Allow yourself to feel centered in yourself. And briefly do a body scan from your toes all the way up to the top of your head. And notice how you're carrying this moment in time. Don't change it if you don't have to. Just simply be in it, observe it, notice it. So is there pain or is there suffering? Is there anxiety <laughs> worry? Bless you. Just notice it and breathe gently into it with compassion. In whatever room you find yourself in, with your eyes closed or cloaked, I want you to let your mind go to the room at large. So it's shifting out of yourself into the room. And this is just a little playfulness and imagining, but let yourself and your imagination fill that room. And over in the right corner of that room, right now, put the thing that you are most worried about for your beloveds. It could be one or many things, but just put it over in the corner, park it on the corner. Notice it, see it, feel it, honor it. And then perhaps in another corner, put the thing that you most worry about for yourself. You can even do this if you want, sort of iconically. You can, you can put it as words, or you can put it as a picture, or a pictogram, an emoji. What is it that symbolizes your worry? And then noticing how your concern for your beloveds is in one corner, and concern for yourself is in another. Perhaps in the third corner, put your concerns for the world. Again, it's a pictograph or an emoji or a symbol. 
And then in the fourth corner of the room, if there is a fourth corner, put anything else that comes to mind that is something you're concerned or worried about. And let your attention go to how you're holding the space for all these things. And when you're ready, and I'll just go through the instructions first and then I'll take us through it as a practice. When you're ready, either choosing one corner or all corners. So you get to regulate whether you want a little bit or a big um, inhale of the suffering. You're going to let your attention go to one corner or all four corners or two corners, whatever you want. So allow yourself to control how much you take of, of the suffering in. You notice what the suffering is. You've let your attention be drawn to it. Your intention is to hold it. And now with a great act of courage, you're going to take in the suffering of one of those corners or all of those corners. You can do it successively if you want. So first taking in the beloved's then your own, then for the world, then for everything. And you draw in breath deeply, consciously visualizing that you're taking in that suffering and you take it down to your heart space, or your heart mind. And once it touches your heart, you surround it and swaddle it as you would a child to protect it. And then you're going to transform it with the fire or the heat of love that is generated from your heart. So taking that suffering into you is something that the Western world would not encourage or do, and it may cause you a bit more anxiety. If that happens, pull yourself out and just simply breathe and hold the suffering and know that you're holding it changes it. But taking it in to your heart, Surrounding it, holding it, gently letting it be in the flames of your love and compassion. And then transforming and exhaling it. And send to the corner that you've just inhaled, or all four corners, the power of love, the power of compassion, the power of transformation. So essentially this practice is exchanging ourselves for others. It's bringing in the suffering of someone else. It can be bringing in the suffering of ourself. But bringing it in, taking it to our heart, not our worry-based mind, but our heart of loving kindness and compassion. And it's essentially throwing love at all the suffering that fills the room. What actually happens when you do that is that you're actually exercising your brain. You're shifting out of negative ideation into something that's more positive or optimistic or hopeful. The transformation takes place within you. And when asked if this actually transforms anything, His Holiness said it can't hurt to try and practice it. And 
So I, I do this, and I find it in the presence of suffering. It makes me feel better. And people who practice with me, they come out of it and they say they have a, a lightness of being around it. It is a practice, and so you have to try it many, many times and start gently. But it would be part of what would be a transformational mindfulness meditation practice rather than an alternative that might be bare awareness or awareness attached to breath. I don't know that it'll work for you, but it is a practice that I use around my own suffering on days that I can't walk or I've got a lot of pain. Instead of letting my attention focus on what's wrong with me and what's wrong in my life, I start to focus on the room being filled with the suffering of myself and others and how while I'm lying down and not able to move, there is something I can do to bring change. And it works for me. So I encourage people to practice this as a transformational mindfulness piece. Um, and you can, I think you can Google it and it'll come up um, for you. There are many teachers who teach this practice within Buddhism. Or I encourage you to find some kind of practice uh, in contemplative prayer uh, where you are sending out, you're actually spending time reflecting and setting an intention around prayer to change the world. And if you're somebody that doesn't believe in either meditation or contemplative practice, find somebody who needs something and offer to help them, even if that is toilet paper that they need. Um, but maybe they might need something else, just like a social connection, a phone call, um, an offer to help somebody carry um, some groceries from a store to their front porch. Um, find a way to, to make the world a better place and it'll come back to you a hundredfold. Jay, thanks so much for this opportunity. Thank you so much, Michelle. See you.